0: from the time we come to Christ until the time we go home to be with him god calls us to change right? change sanctification growing in our holiness growing in our walk walk with god uh, growing in our christ likeness that is the trajectory of the life of someone who has been brought into relationship with god god calls us to change and never stop changing in this life uh, and that that doesn't just mean changing in abstract virtues right it doesn't mean becoming some kind of good person that's independent of the way that you relate, uh, relate to other people, but it's real, profound growth in your capacity to love God and your capacity to love other people, especially people who are different from you. Israel, um, <clears throat> Israel discarded these things, right? It says in verse 7, um, they're being condemned as those who turn justice to wormwood. Wormwood was a, a bitter-tasting herb that was actually poisonous. Um, and and woe, uh, so woe to them who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, right? They don't want to have anything to do with the way that you treat other people uh, changing in the ways that God commanded them. And so God's response is this in uh, verse 8. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. Um, it says this one is going to uh, take them up out of the houses built of stone that they've made and uh, give those houses to other people. He's going to take them out of the beautiful, pleasant vineyards that they've made for themselves so that they can't enjoy the fruit of the the, the vine that they've planted. And it's um, it's significant because this, um, this God is a God of change. And he calls us uh, to change, he, he changes us. He's the god who made the Pleiades and Orion, which are the constellations in ancient, ancient ancient times, which signified the turning of the seasons. He's the god who makes the sun come up in the morning and who darkens the day at the end of the day. Right, the the days change. Uh, he's the one who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. He controls the changes in weather. He's the god who controls everything that changes and the change that he's going to bring into their lives. Uh, would not be a pleasant one. Right? He's uprooting them from the place that they've called home, the place where they find um, their security. He's uprooting them and uh, casting them into exile through, uh, through the invasion of Assyria. And then um, he goes on to talk about uh, Beersheba in verses 14 to 17. And um, Beersheba, again, was the location for worship that they would travel to that was far south, in the heart of Judah. So they're walking through the land of their brothers who had become their enemies, right? This uh, this whole thing was a reminder to them of the disunity that they had amongst themselves as the people of God as they go to this place uh, for worship. Why do they go there? Um, Alec Motyer says, "At, at Beersheba, each of the three patriarchs, Again, this comes up in the book of Genesis uh, several times, this place Beersheba. Each of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in turn received the assurance of the companionship of God with them. I am with you. I will be with you. I will be your God. Israel had grown to lightly assume that they had peace with God, to presume upon God's uh, gracious presence with them. They boasted that God was with them. That must have been true, since obviously they were, they were prosperous, right? They were uh, enjoying relative uh, prosperity and peace with the surrounding nations. Um, this is what uh, God says in verse 14, seek evil and not good that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said, right? Um, God will be with you when you seek evil. Uh, when you seek good and not evil, then He'll be with you like you think that He is now, uh, which you falsely presume. And then, verse fifteen: hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. There is the, again that concept of uh, justice and righteousness in relationship with other people. Um, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So. Um, Do these things, then by God's grace, which you should not presume upon, right? It ceases to be grace if you just take it for granted. Um, Then he'll be with you like he was with Joseph. Joseph was the one about whom it was said four times at least in the book of Genesis. God was with him. God was with him. Um, But since they didn't love what God loved, which was good, and since they didn't hate what God hated, which was evil, then he would come, and he would be among them, but he would be among them in fury. It says in uh, verses 16 and 17, Therefore, thus says the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing, those who are skilled in lamentation. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst." You want me to come and be with you, like those promises that I made to my people at Beersheba, uh, the promises that you remember as you go there on a regular pilgrimage? I'll be with you. I will pass through your midst, and it will be cause for wailing. Again, Alec Motyer says, "As uh, as he presences himself among them, there is that about him, his glory, his person, his greatness, his majesty, his Godhead, which causes all, without exception, to wail inconsolably and to acknowledge themselves lost. And then, uh, finally, he turns to Gilgal religion, verses 18 through 27. Let me read some from uh, Alec Motyer's book here. Um, Gilgal first entered the history of the people of God when they invaded the Promised Land under Joshua. It was the site of their first encampment and the place where they erected a 12-stone commemorative monument to the miraculous crossing of the Jordan. It was at Gilgal that they were reconstituted as the people of the covenant by means of circumcision and the Passover. There also they experienced the first fruits of possession of the land. From Gilgal as his headquarters, Joshua pushed out west, south, and north in his wars of conquest— And at Gilgal, Saul, the first king, was confirmed in his kingship. Clearly then, Gilgal was the shrine which proclaimed the inheritance and possession of the promised land, according to the will of God. Um, In Joshua 5, um, we also read from there, Gilgal is uh, mentioned in Joshua a few times, but... In Joshua chapter 5, the Lord had um, had Joshua circumcise all the people. So as like the entire nation had just been uh, circumcised, all the men. And, um, and the covenant renewed with them. And it says, the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal um, sounds like the Hebrew word for roll. Right? So, God rolled away the reproach of Egypt. The, the captivity, the oppression, the shame, uh, everything that was associated with their time spent in slavery in Egypt, God has rolled that away and brought them in uh, to their inheritance, to the promised land. So, Gilgal was the reminder of Israel's freedom, it was the reminder of the possession of their inheritance. And Israel now enjoyed military strength. Uh, relatively speaking, they were, they were at peace with all the bordering nations, no longer having uh, wars. So God had rolled back all Israel's enemies. Surely it was a sign that they found favor in his sight. Right. But um, Alec Motyer again says, Pilgrims rolled into the festivals, but justice and righteousness failed to roll out into the er- irrigation channels of daily life and relationships, they went to these pilgrimages. Uh, they went to these festivals in Gilgal. They worshipped. They celebrated with songs, but their worship was empty. It was a it was a perversion of true worship, um, as it says in uh, verses twenty-one through um, through twenty-five. God is not pleased with this form of worship. This formalism. I hate, I despise your feasts. Take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Um, Sacrifices alone are not enough. Religious activity alone is not enough. The people of God, the people that God had created in His image, the people that God had redeemed and called out of the world and granted his presence to, these people hated each other. And they used one another and they oppressed one another, which strikes straight at God's heart. Right? So the people who so celebrated God's um, planting them in the land would be removed from it into exile. It says earlier in the passage, Gilgal shall be thrown into exile. So, um, it's a lot about condemnation, right? There's a lot uh, wrong with the way that we worship. Um, A lot wrong with the way Israel was um, pretending to worship God, uh, following their own devices in worship. Um, doing what God said they should not do as they worshiped and ignoring, um, as we read in our, uh, in our New Testament reading from the Gospel of Matthew, ignoring the weightier matters of the law. Remember, they should have done all these things that they were uh, doing in worship, bringing sacrifices and singing songs, um, but they shouldn't have done that to the neglect of the weightier matters of the law, which is what they're being condemned for here. So what then? Throughout this passage, you see over and over repeatedly, seek me and live, God says. Seek the Lord and live. Seek good and not evil and live. And Israel says, we thought we were. We thought we were seeking you and getting life from that. What about these pilgrimages to these holy sites? What about our sacrifices? What about our singing? Does that count for anything? Isn't that seeking you? Gordon Ketty, a commentator, says, there was a great deal of activity. Israel may have been dead from God's point of view, but you have not said so, you would have not said so if you had seen the statistics on church attendance and giving. We must, therefore, look at the deeper things, the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. There is a lot of devotion There was a lot of zeal. There was a lot of fervor, uh, religious fervor and religious practices. But all of it was empty and worse than empty. All of it it was ghastly and corrupt in God's sight. Religion is ghastly and corrupt unless your religion expresses itself in compassion and love and selflessness. The true changes that God is bringing about The true purpose of having fellowship and communion with God. And imagine then Israel's disbelief when God said, seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. We thought we were pursuing you through these religious activities. But God says we can have all the religious trappings, we can sing all the nicest songs, yet be on the completely wrong track. Because we use religion, it's so easy for us to use religion to get the things that religion's supposed to get you. We use it for self seeking purposes, for self aggrandizing purposes, for self justification. You want to be okay with God? You do the religious stuff. You want to compare yourself to non religious people? You do the religious stuff better. All the while, remaining uh, truly disconnected from God, unsubmissive to his will, um, and disregarding the the more important matters of the law, we deceive ourselves, we delude ourselves into thinking that we have favor with God because of our religious activities. So how can you tell if that's you? How can you tell um, whether you're using your religion in this way? because uh, I'm not advocating that you stop going to church, right, or um, worshiping or bringing your sacrifices and giving, um, those things that, uh, that oftentimes we depend upon to make us right with God. I'm not advocating that you stop those things, as Jesus said in the gospel. You should have done these things also without neglecting them, the weightier matters of the law. So how can you tell whether you're using religion that way? How can you tell if this funeral dirge is being sung for you, that you're the dying virgin. Um, It doesn't mean uh, pure and spotless, uh, chaste virgin. It means someone whose potential has not been fulfilled yet. How can you tell whether you're the, um, the dying virgin whose life has been stunted? It's real simple. Are you mean? Do you care about others? Do you love others? Do you seek justice for them? especially for those who the world uh, would consider to be beneath you? Do you make a big deal about church on Sunday mornings, but minimize, maybe conserve your energy when it comes to serving um, and and engaging in compassionate ministries? Is serving the poor something that you um, put on the back burner because you're too busy reading good theological books? Do your conversations with other Christians tend uh, toward theological debate rather than um, mutually brainstorming ideas for, for missions and mercy, how to reach the lost with the love of Christ? Do you, um, do you neglect social justice? Is it just pretty low on your agenda? Where does it rank in your political views? Is it a big part of uh, the things that you teach your children when you're training them in your in the faith? Let me ask you, just um, since it's practical today, this packed with love thing, providing uh, backpacks filled with supplies for public school kids. Do you disdain the public school kids because their families don't homeschool them or um, or send them to a Christian school? You reluctant then to share with them the resources that God has given you? Does community care day, the day later in the summer where we uh, go to serve on a campus at a, at a local public school, seem like a low priority to you? Maybe I'll find time for it. I'm not going to put it on the calendar. It's just kind of an add-on, maybe if I've got the energy, um, add-on to my more regular religious practices. How often do you um, pray for your own health and comfort? And how often do you pray for justice justice? For society's casualties. How often do you cry out in desperation, How long, O Lord, until you come and set everything right for them? Uh, If you're like me, when you uh, ask yourself these questions, you feel like your worship is pretty empty. Mere ritualism. Worse than empty, uh, it's offensive to God, right? Such religion as is, um, as is customary for us is a way to try to m- manipulate God to get him on our side or at least deceive ourselves into thinking that we've successfully gotten God on our side, that he's with us, that we belong in heaven. But in all of our loveless worship, our empty religion... Instead, we've earned ourselves exile away from God's presence forever. Uh, even, even though, however, we are con- condemnable for presuming upon God's grace. He has more grace. He doesn't just give us what we deserve, right? He sent His Son Jesus to intercept the justice that we deserve, which would not be pleasant for us. God's righteous wrath toward our hypocrisy, toward our empty worship, has um, has been poured out on Jesus at the cross. He was exiled into death and hell, away from the presence of his Father in heaven, so that we would not be exiled for for what we truly deserve. It's in Jesus that all the promises of God are yes and amen. They all they all come true. All the Bethel promises, right? God descending the ladder, becoming incarnate, becoming a man, revealing Himself for our transformation, for the transformation of the whole world. God calls us out of darkness and into light, into the kingdom of His beloved Son, and we leave behind the old man dead at the cross, where Jesus died for us for our sins. And we put on the new risen man, Jesus Christ. We put on the new man, and we are changed because of Jesus, because of the grace of God that's given to us in the gospel. Beersheba religion, uh, seeking after true communion with God, true companionship where God promises, I will be with you. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus is, and because God, when he looks at you, he sees you with all the splendor and all the love, and all the majesty and perfection of his own son, Jesus. And God will never forsake us because of Jesus. And Jesus, uh, when he ascended into heaven, sent his spirit into the world to dwell with us, to dwell in us. God is with us, and he will never leave us because of uh, Jesus, because of the grace in the gospel. And Gilgal religion, this idea of inheritance now um, possession that we have at the promise of God is no longer limited to uh, to some territory in the Middle East right, um, in Palestine it's it's no longer limited to national Israel, the the national borders, their geographical location, um, the inheritance that's promised to us because of Jesus is the inheritance of the Son of God himself, which is All things, right? Heaven is our inheritance. The entire universe, all of creation, everything that God owns, which is uh, shared freely with his Son, is shared freely with us, and it is ours. Paul says, all things are yours in Christ Jesus. All of this comes to us by his grace in a way that humbles us, in a way that renews us as uh, people who are made in God's image, and who are being changed, who are being refashioned after the likeness of Christ. So um, seek the Lord Jesus Christ and live. Seek His grace. Seek what is good from Him and live. Learn about what is good. Learn about what He loves and love that as you're transformed into His image by God's grace. Be filled with with streams of everlasting life that flow out of you in compassion, in justice, in righteousness, in mercy, rolling forth like waves upon the shore to other people. Seek the Lord as he has revealed himself in Jesus. Let him transform your relationships, make you patient and forgiving and just in in your dealing with, with others. Let his presence flood your heart With love for him and love for your fellow human beings. And let the hope of your inheritance in him move you to give up everything. what need do you have for worldly comforts? When you can give those up for the good of others around you. To pursue their uh, justice and mercy in their lives. This is the kind of worship that the Father seeks. It's a true response to his grace. That changes uh, you at a deep level. It changes your spirit. So seek the Lord and live. Amen. Amen.